0: Let's bow our heads, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the joys of Christmas time, time we can be together, uh, the time that we can celebrate, Lord, your birth, your coming, your hope, Lord. We just thank you, Jesus, and Father, we just pray as we um, come before you, may you speak to us, may your spirit uh, move in our hearts and our minds. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Imagine living in a land that was once yours generations ago, but has since been taken over by the dominant or more powerful ruling power, right? right. You have no say in the living conditions as to where you live or the law of the land, even the leaders who are supposed to protect you, right? They're supposed to provide for your best interests. Even they take advantage of you. The living conditions, situations, there's two major parties that govern the people. But even these two parties can't seem to come in agreement. They're always in opposition with each other. They can't seem to get along or agree with each other. They're fiercely divided, struggle to come to agreement. Economically, there are two kind of main classes or social classes. If you're one of the few, small, wealthy class, you're more likely privileged. Most citizens will be part of the working class and many of them would be poor. People are burdened by taxes, and the chance of upward mobility is probably slim to none. People feel oppressed on both sides by the ruling powers, but even in their local leaders. Corruption has infected all areas of life and the people know it all this is a recipe for social unrest the people they hold out for hope for a hopeful future but they know it would take an act of God for that to happen does that sound familiar to you does that scenario sound familiar? I bet that there are many civilizations, many countries, many groups of people who could hear that scenario and probably relate to such conditions, right? Some people would think of that as like, are you describing our country today, even? Right? Of course, what I described is the life of the first century Jew. Most of them lived in two regions, Judea, Judea, or Galilee, and maybe they were spread throughout the other surrounding regions. But this was the life of the first century Jew. Their land, their, their, where they was home, was under the power of the Roman Empire, right? And the Jews, now they were allowed, the Romans, well, how they did, they allowed the people to worship. So the Jews were allowed to worship. But even their worship was governed by the two major parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? So that was their world, their realm, or not realm, but the, you know, their living situation. Title of the message today is Hope on the Horizon. Hope. We're all hoping for something, right? I won't ask you all what you're hoping for, but I imagine you all have a hope for something, right? How long are you willing to hold out for hope? If you're thinking about something, probably many of you have something that popped into your mind right away. You've been hoping for something. And perhaps you've been hoping for something for a long time. At what point do you lose hope? At what point do you stop praying based on that hope? That hope for a change. Many Jews at that time were hoping for a change, right? They were hoping and many clung to the hope that God would intervene and defeat the enemies of Israel. They're hoping that his Messiah would come and usher in his kingdom and just wipe out the enemies and it would bring them hope just as God had promised them. They're hoping for that Messiah to come. But hope would come in a way that they did not expect, in a way they did not anticipate. And today we're going to look at a couple who had hope, they had hopes on a larger scale, but I think they had a hope on a more personal scale. And we'll look at God's response and how it relates to Christmas. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to take a pause from Genesis, and we're going to take a look at Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start it at verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, if you've been with us in the past month, there should be something about what I just read that sounds familiar. There's something about Zacharias and Elizabeth that ought to stand out. Did you catch it? Notice the description of Zacharias and Elizabeth's character, right? It says in verse 6, And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all his commandments. What is it, who does that remind you of? Hopefully you, it, 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 it reminds you of something, right? We've been looking at it for the past month, right? Reminds you of Noah, right? Noah was, was described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He was obedient and he was faithful so here again, we see that God is going to show his favor again. But besides their character, there's something else about Zacharias and Elizabeth. What else does it say? They were advanced in years, they were a little bit older, but also they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. Now, I mentioned before that God shows his favor. But he has shown that his favor serves a greater purpose than what's expected. God is intentional and purposeful. Let's see what happens. Verse 8. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So Zacharias goes in the temple to do his priestly service. Now the priesthood at the time was divided by family name. And so there's 24 different groups. And each of the 24 divisions served in the temple for one week, twice a year, in addition to the major festivals. Okay, So there's a a, a number of priests... Divided, and they all had their assignments of a given point in time. Okay? But due to the number of priests, an individual priest could only offer incense at the daily sacrifice only once in his lifetime. Okay, so this was an honor and a privilege. So this is already a significant moment for Zacharias. This is his opportunity to go in for the offer, to offer the incense as a daily sacrifice, okay? Verse 11, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, For your petition has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Notice Gabriel says, your petition, or the angel says, your petition has been heard, now, I wonder, what's, what's the angel referring to? Was the angel referring to a prayer that he gave on behalf of the people? Right, the people are outside offering their prayers, and he's going on an incense is representative of the prayers being lifted up to God. Was the angel referring to the prayers that are being brought up on behalf of the people and, and himself on behalf of God? Or perhaps was it even his own personal prayer? He and Elizabeth... I imagine they had been in prayer for a child for who knows how many years, right? I'm sure that they had held on to hope that one day they would have a child themselves. And it made me kind of wonder, I wonder at what point did they stop asking if they stopped asking, right? I wonder, at what point did they just stop and say, well, you know what? I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I wonder what, at what age they probably stopped at. Now, I want to take a moment and say the lesson here in this passage is not don't stop praying, just believe in faith and it will happen. I don't think that's the lesson here. I don't think the lesson here is that you just pray and believe in faith and God will give you what you want. I don't think that's a lesson here, because I know, and I think you've all known, there have been many faith-filled prayers that were not answered as they expected or wanted to. Perhaps it's your own. Perhaps it's someone you know. You've been praying, and you really believe that God can do it, and will do it, and it hasn't come to pass yet. Rather, I believe the lesson here so far is that God heard the petition. That's the lesson. That God heard the petition. petition. He heard the prayer. And that's really big time important. I was trying to think of a good, like, sophisticated word to say big time, but I think big time just says it all. This is a big time lesson to learn. That God hears prayer. But what's also important is to know that you can trust That if God hears prayer, you can trust his response. We can trust his response. That's a tough lesson, but it's a lesson we need to take away from. In Elizabeth's barrenness, she didn't have children. There is a purpose. And in God's miraculous provision, there will be a purpose. Elizabeth will bear a son, and they are to name him John. And there's going to be a great celebration because of their birth. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, if you're Zacharias, you're a priest, you immediately know what this reference is. He knows immediately Malachi chapter 4. Because in Malachi chapter 4, it speaks of a forerunner who will come before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That passage, he would know, it refers to there will be someone who will come before that day who will bring the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. They will be ready for that day of the Lord. Now, I kind of want to take a moment and appreciate the importance of familial relationships as a mark of righteousness and obedience. You think about it, God could have marked any kind of relationships, but he says before that he will come and he'll bring the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And here we see in the the message to Zacharias, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Why is that interesting? I find it interesting, is this relationship spoken of that prepares the people's hearts for the coming of the Lord? That parent-child relationship. Why is that significant? That parent-child relationship is the first experience we ought to have about love, right? That parent-child relationship. It's that first parent-child relationship that teaches us about love. It teaches us what love looks like. It teaches us how to love, right? That's the first experience we ought to have. But we also know that may be our first experience to Bitterness, resentment, unloving, uncaring, neglect, rebelliousness, disobedience, right? We first learn disobedience within that parent-child relationship. It's the most foundational relationship we have where we learn about these things. So I find it interesting that God refers to that relationship of bringing the hearts of the father back to the children and bringing the children's heart back to the fathers. That closeness, that relationship. And if I haven't stressed it enough already, I'm gonna do it again. That family relationship, that parent-child dynamic is so crucial. It's so crucial. Our children ought to be able to testify of their parents' faith. Right? We ought to. As parents, be able to say, you know what? That relationship, my child ought to see my faith. Ought to see God's love through my life, through my parenting That I try not to do anything to turn my child away. Not only away from me, but away from the Lord. And likewise, as children as well, right? We ought to have that attitude that if we're in rebelliousness with our parents, does that reflect also rebelliousness with God? Because that's how we first learn disobedience, rebelliousness as a kid, right? I think we all remember those moments as a kid. So it's interesting, that is the relationship that is mentioned about preparing people's hearts for the coming of the Lord. Verse 18, and Zacharias said to the angel, right, he's hearing all this news, he says to the angel, how shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, Zacharias asked a very understandable question, right? He's like, well, wait a second. How am I going to know for sure that this is going to happen? Look, I'm an old guy. And my wife, well, she's a little advanced in years. I think he was trying to be polite and say she's a little past childbearing years. Now, husbands, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean you can quote it, okay? So if someone asks how old your wife is, I wouldn't say she's advanced in years. Nor ever describe your wife as you're looking a little advanced in years. All right, don't do that. Not good advice. Don't quote that Bible verse. But he asks a very understandable question. How am I going to know for certain? We always want certainty, right? Verse 19, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Here's another lesson. Be careful for asking for a sign. Right? How many of us have asked God for a sign? Be careful for asking for a sign. But imagine, I'll I'll let Zacharias off the hook. Imagine being Zacharias, a priest, and you encounter an angel, not just any angel, but the messenger angel, the same one that appeared to Daniel and gave him the visions, right? And on top of that, he gives you the best news you could hear. Now, most people, Most parents have high hopes for their children, right? How many of you as parents, when your children were being born, you had visions of what they would be? How many of you, among your circle of friends, maybe you have kids, you have other friends who have kids of the same age, you had certain discussions about what your kids were going to be? Oh, yeah, my my child, I can tell he's going to be a great doctor. Going to be a great lawyer, has a mind for a lawyer. Always oh, going to be a successful this or that, right? I imagine Zacharias is like, Yeah, they have nothing on my boy now. He is going to be the forerunner, the one who's going to prepare the hearts for the coming of the Lord. Yeah, I would say he has them all beat on that one. 21. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying... This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So Zacharias comes out, can't say anything. They realize, whoa, something must have happened there. He leaves, he goes back home. Can you imagine the conversation? Well there's no conversation, right, because he's mute, right? They play this great game of charades, I'm assuming. He comes in, and I imagine Elizabeth's like, "Hey, sweethearts, so I don't know, what do you call them? How was the temple? How was it? Tell me all about it." And he's like... You know, he's trying to gesture, trying to make it. You know, he's doing things like,, down, you know, stuff like he's doing the charades thing. He gets a tablet. I'm sure he's like trying to write down all that's happened. And Elizabeth's like, what's going on? What happened to your voice, right? She's like reading it. I, I, I assume, maybe, maybe not. You're like, I'll never guess what happened. Okay, what happened, right? What have we been praying for all this time? What have we been praying for all this time? I don't know, a new house? A new what? I don't know. What have we been praying for? We're going to have a What? We're going to have a child? How? I'm going to have a son? Can you imagine? What are the first things Elizabeth would have thought? When she gets the news, of course, you know, she assumes that, yeah, I'm a little advanced in age myself, right? There's a point where you realize, all right, I'm not going to have any more kids, But I imagine Elizabeth's first thoughts was Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, all these women who she's read about, who at one point was barren and had no children, and yet God gave them a child of promise. Can you imagine being Elizabeth saying, I are going to be along the lines of these women who were barren but God is going to give a miraculous child. Her response, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. God showed his favor but he's also going to show he had A purpose. Fast forward months to the birth, verse fifty-seven. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth the son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. So just as Gabriel declared, there's great rejoicing with them. The people were so happy, and they're celebrating with her that she was going to have a child. And it made me think about, it. it's really a treasure to have people in your life who will rejoice with you. I think we take that for granted, right? It's a treasure to be able to have people in your life who will rejoice with you. I say that because there are some people who, make, who find it difficult to rejoice with people, right? They have a hard time. They immediately go to, what's stressful about? Oh, man, you're going to have a child. Oh, good luck. All right, have you had that? Right, you announce that you're going to have a baby, and then these veteran parents, like, you're going to have a baby. (laughs) Well, just wait till they get to two. Wait till they get to three. Oh, are you sure you want to do this? They think about all the stress, all the worry, all the complaints, all the doubts. All right, maybe you can relate to that. I can relate to that. Meaning that I need to work on that. Because I can think of so many stressful reasons not to rejoice, not to be thankful, not to doubt. But it's a treasure if we could even be people in someone's life who can rejoice with other people about things that is worth rejoicing over. Verse 59. And it came about on that eighth day. They came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. I bet Elizabeth was a little, wait, wait, you couldn't take my word, (laughs) right? (laughs) And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Notice Zacharias and Elizabeth were obedient and faithful in naming him John. Many people might have thought, well, that's just a little minor detail, right? They were faithful and obedient and then named their son John even to the shock of everybody else against what would be kind of tradition even right but the moment they obeyed their obedience and faith was fulfilled Zacharias' mouth was opened once they've showed themselves faithful and obedient to the end his mouth was opened What did he say? Pay attention to the key words in Zacharias' prophetic words that came. Focus on these key words because they speak to God's hearts, his purpose, and the coming of his son, Jesus the Messiah. Verse 67, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zacharias proclaims to the witness that God is fulfilling his promises. The God of Israel is remembering his covenant with Abraham. He will bring redemption, salvation, deliverance from their enemies. Now, I think this is kind of an appropriate and an important reminder for us today. Especially with what's going on, what's been going on for the last several months. In a time where being anti-Israel, being anti-Semitic is kind of trendy... It's kind of fashionable lately. I think it's important that we Gentile Christians, particularly, we need to remember the roots of our faith. Because the same God of Israel, the same God of Israel that Zacharias is speaking of, that the Hebrew Scriptures is speaking of, is the same God we believe in today right? The same God who promises a deliverer for his people of Israel at the hands of their enemy is the same God that we serve today. Same God. It's not a different God. He didn't change clothes. He didn't shift focus. It's important we remember that. And when I say that, this isn't about agreeing about what the nation of Israel today does. It's not the point. The point point isn't that we have to agree with everything the nation of Israel does. What we need to remember, God still has his promises for the people of Israel. He still will fulfill his promises. I don't believe that The people of Israel has kind of lost its purpose, and it's just all to the, quote-unquote, Christians. I believe God still is going to hold his promises. The shift now goes to John, verse 76. And you, child, will be called... So his focus goes on his child. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What a moment for this couple and this child. It's interesting, the names Zacharias, Elizabeth, and John. Zacharias means remembered of Jehovah. Elizabeth, oath of God. And John, Jehovah is gracious giver. In this moment, in this little family here, God shows. God remembered his oath, and he is a gracious giver. God saw Zacharias and Elizabeth. He showed them favor, but he also showed, I have an even greater purpose than you could have ever imagined. And even in John's mission, His mission would be to prepare the people's hearts for Jesus, the Messiah, to come. His mission was not a military one. That's what the people would have wanted to see happen, right? But his mission was what? To turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He was to give... God's people, the knowledge of salvation by military conquest, by wiping out the Roman Empire, it was by the forgiveness of their sins. We see God will extend compassion and mercy. God will give hope to the afflicted and guide them to peace. It's amazing that God uses miraculous and unlikely circumstances to carry out his purposes. Isn't it? It's kind of amazing that way. It's also amazing that God uses very flawed, sinful people to carry out his purposes, to show his glory. It's interesting the repeated themes in this passage that God has a message for his people, and his message is a message of salvation, redemption, mercy, covenant. Remember, we saw a covenant last time. I want to make covenant with you forgiveness of sin, peace, and hope. That was God's message. It says, Zacharias, your son is going to be the one who's going to prepare the people. And this is the message. This is what they need to hear because my son is coming, right? All this, as we will see, is not just for the Jew, but will be for the Jew and Gentile alike. All who will believe in his name. The people looked to God for deliverance. They wanted his kingdom to come. And that day will come. But first, the Messiah had another mission, right? And that mission was accomplished on the cross. The forgiveness of sin, the ultimate sacrifice. Because no government power can provide what Jesus did, right? We're going to have elections coming up no matter who is elected as president, they will not be the Messiah for our country. I think we can all agree to that. I think we're like, yeah, we can all agree on that, right? But the Messiah had to come first. Christmas time celebrates God's love and provision, that he remembered his covenant, his promise with his people. And that covenant was extended to all, Jew and Gentile alike, it's kind of interesting hearing about Zacharias and Elizabeth because I was reflecting on this, this story. The story reminds me of the things that maybe we've been praying about that have yet to come to pass, right? Maybe you read that story, whether it's the same scenario or not, you remember things that you've been praying for, you hoped for, you hoped would change, and you honestly believe God can do it, but it hadn't happened yet and you're like what's happening why aren't you listening God why isn't there a change and again I want to say I don't read this as a prescription to get what you pray for trying to live a righteous life or a blameless life right is not a means to get what you want Right? Let me repeat that. Right. Trying to do all the best you can, do a lot of good works and all this stuff, is not a means to get what you want from God. Right? We all know those students who are kind of like you know, teacher's pets. Right. They're just trying to get the favor of the teacher. They're trying to be on the, the best students. And even the teacher knows, all right, kid, all right, all right, all right, all right. I know what you're trying to do. Parents know when the kids are trying to butter their parents up. Like, why did you make your bed today? Why are you taking out the trash without asking? Right, all that kind of stuff. Parents know. But see, if we take that mentality, well, maybe if I do the best I can, I'm the best person, that God will hear me, God will answer my prayers. It doesn't work that way. In fact, oftentimes, that just ends up messing up with our own heart and intention about doing what's pleasing to God. It's not that kind of recipe, Right? But if your prayer is not answered as you hoped, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have God's favor or that God's not hearing you either. That's important to understand as well, right? If your prayer is not answered as you had hoped, it doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't favor, has his favors upon you, his grace isn't upon you, or that he's just, you know, not listening to you. But at the same time, I want us to kind of think about this. Do we give God just cause in showing his favor towards us? In other words, are we trustworthy with his gifts? Do do we show ourselves faithful to what he does give us? Or does he bless us with something and then we just take it as our own and we just do whatever we want with it and we abuse it or we don't even give him glory or credit for it? Can he trust us with the blessings that we desire to have in our life? Right? Are we happy to receive, and this is something to think about, are we happy to receive his favor if it means that it's going to be giving him more glory than ourselves? So if he gives us the desires of our hearts, are we willing to let that be for a greater purpose than what we even intended? Or are we just looking for our own self-satisfaction and pleasures? God's favor may come. He may answer the prayers of your heart. But can you be prepared for it to have a purpose even greater than your expectation? Are you willing to even consider that. That Lord, may I honor you and be found trustworthy with what you've blessed me with. That I will be faithful and be honoring to you and be faithful and obedient to the end to see it through. Because you are the giver. Right? As you seek the Lord with your petitions, whatever your petitions may be, whatever your desires, whatever you're hoping is underneath the Christmas tree, maybe what you're really praying for is beyond a boxed gift. It's probably something even more. I pray that the Lord will find us trustworthy with what he blesses us with. And say, God, if you bless me, may I be found faithful with what you've given me, what you've blessed me with. As we see the story leading up to the coming of Christ, God blessed a faithful couple with a miracle, but the greater miracle is coming. That's nothing compared to what is going to happen with Christ. And that's what we celebrate Christmas with. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, um, in a season of gift-giving and receiving, and Lord, as we're reminded of your great gift to us, your message of hope to us, your love for us, Lord, I know there are many in this room watching, listening. We probably can relate to perhaps Zacharias and Elizabeth who probably hoped for many years for something. For a change. And maybe, Lord, maybe that, that desire had passed Maybe we're hoping for something else. Lord, I pray those hopes and prayers would not be cause for doubting you. But Lord, may it turn to you, may their hearts turn to you. And Lord, help them to trust you, trust your response. Remind them, Lord, that you see them, you hear them, and may their hearts be directed to you and say, Lord God, my deliverer, my savior, my provider, my hope, may I be faithful to the end, obedient to the end to you, Lord God, and trust in your provisions, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.